Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, I have another guest from Singularity University. And as I always say, uh, the people that work with and, uh, and for Singularity University are Renaissance men and women. They are into all kinds of amazing things. And I always have great conversations with them. So my guest today is Nathaniel Calhoun, uh, the Vice Chair of Global Grand Challenges at Singularity University. Undoubtedly, he's into many other projects as well, which we'll ask him about. So Nathaniel, how are you doing? Doing really well. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, no problem. So, you know, would you give listeners um, a brief overview of uh, your background and, you know, the projects that you're involved in? Um, I started off as, a, as an educator in the classroom, um, teaching uh, high school or secondary students uh, kind of literature and philosophy and things before they graduated. But I was doing that in uh, the Middle East and Africa uh, and uh, doing a bit of curricular design at the same time. Um, after a few years of that, I got into uh, digitally uh, mediated education and there focused mostly um, on uh, U.S. junior and high school students who are at very high risk of dropping out. And I was working with an organization called IcouldBe.org to try to organize uh, online mentoring experiences for them. That was the beginning of my starting to work on um, uh, instructional design with digital tools um, and then kind of program uh, design and evaluation and so forth uh, where um, the people under my supervision were far away and might never meet me in person. Uh, that got on that got me on UNICEF's radar um, and I joined uh, with uh, I started a small company called Code Innovation that picked up some contracts for UNICEF uh, when they first started an innovations uh, section which has since become really trend-setting within the international aid and development community, um, and worked with them in a little over a dozen different sub-Saharan African countries trying to make use of the kind of decrepit computer labs that had been seeded around the continent um, in the decade before, um, kind of a misguided, uh, generous impulse that, that didn't do a whole lot. Um, so I went around and I tried to figure out how to make uh, those computer labs um, produce meaningful educational impact for people. Um, and then kind of in the last 10 years have just been iterating on what's my tech platform in these vulnerable communities. Uh, went from being uh, desktop to mobile, predictably. Um, and then what are the program models that enable um, the greatest pickup, the, great, the most uh, kind of sticky and enduring impact without requiring a huge overhead of, uh, say, like boots on the ground and, uh, and, and support costs. Um, so that's, that's been the, the focus uh, of my kind of that side of my professional work for the last decade. Um, and for the last five years, I've been bringing that um, kind of on the ground knowledge uh, and, and experience of, of trying to use tech to solve global grand challenges to the community at Singularity University. Um, I came in as an advisor on educational technologies, uh, then got into their global impact faculty, um, and I'm now, as you mentioned, the vice chair of the Global Grand Challenges and also the managing director of the Global Solutions Program, which is our longest uh, program that is also most dedicated to actually uh, solving 
uh, big intractable world problems and trying to do so by leveraging uh, what SU likes to call exponential technologies. Uh, so a lot of the time is now split between Silicon Valley and teaching and mentoring startups and, and staying uh, up to date on the, the latest tech that people are hopeful will make a difference in the world. And then um, traveling to places like Ethiopia, Tanzania and India and looking into how my own projects are, what we're learning through those projects about applied technology for global impact. So it's kind of a fun practitioner professor split at the moment. Yeah, you're, oh, you're doing a lot. You've been to places a uh, few people go to or have a, a, a concept of what's going on. Maybe let's talk about that first. Um, what's going on today in 2017 in countries like Ethiopia and some of the other ones you mentioned? What's the state of education? What are some of the, like, the, the worst problems that these communities are facing? It's a good question. Um, I've probably, I think I visited my like 30th sub-Saharan African country last year. Um, and I've lived in West Africa for pushing eight years, um, mostly over the last 12. Uh, and so I could, what, what's often most surprising for listeners that aren't familiar with the sub-Saharan African context is how pretty much any country, let's say 80% of the countries you could pick on the map, um, have tremendously well-developed um, cities within them, sometimes whole regions where uh, you recognize um, where you would find a very familiar level of modernity and affluence. Um, if you arrived there with a, with a pretty big bank account, you could cruise around and feel like you were in, um, in a city somewhere else in the world other than maybe the climate feels different to you. Um, so some people are still kind of stuck thinking that, you know, like, Africa hasn't developed simply because there are large portions of the population that have been left behind by that development. And we do, um, uh, we are told their story on a regular basis, which is appropriate because it's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of suffering still, um, to be found amongst the kind of intractably poor. Uh, certainly the educational system, um, I would say a lot of the money that's gone into, that's been invested in Africa, both uh, from the private sector and also especially from the public sector, um, kind of took as a starting point trying to solve uh, major uh, health crises. Um, so there's been a lot of investment and gradual improvement in uh, health systems and in things like distributing bed nets to prevent malaria, um, stocking pharmacies with antiretrovirals. Um, following up with uh, pregnant women to make sure that they're accessing services that are kind of newly established. Um, and some of the better success stories on the continent, I think, have come from strengthening health systems. Um, the education improvements to the education system have lagged behind. And I think that that's explicable because if you look at the education system, certainly in the U.S., uh, it's, it's a terrible joke. Um, and so we can't lead by example, right? We're one of the the U.S. Is one of, has some of the worst educational outcomes of wealthy nations. And so if we're running around spending policy dollars on education, the chances that we, we get it right are lower than they would be if we were Finland. Um, right. So you look around and you still see, um, but, but even there, when you're like, okay, what's the educational challenge? In some cases, it's the school doesn't have a, a private bathroom for girls. So if they're once they reach um, puberty and they start menstruating, they basically just skip school for the entire time that that's happening to them. Right. So they inevitably oh, wow. become at risk of dropping out because it's not safe for them to even just have their bodies and look after their needs. So that's something that people think, you know, they just run around and build toilets. That's a pretty low tech innovation. 
Um, on the other hand, you'll have like uh, kind of chronic bad accounting at a state level and teachers will get paid um, very, very late. They're already underpaid as a profession globally and especially in sub-Saharan Africa. But then if you pile onto that late payment, it's no surprise that teachers stop even attending their classes because they're running around trying to make the money they need to support their families. So that's kind of like a systems level. Like how do you move around cash and make it transparent who's getting their payments and who isn't? So there are initiatives now to try to bring, you know, mobile cash payments uh, uh, that are, are, are easily audited. And I'm, I'm sure someone's trying to throw the blockchain at this one and, uh, and, yep. and, yep. and confirm that payments have been made uh, when they need to be made and try to increase um, the desire of teachers to do what they're supposed to. But by the time you even get them in the room, the likelihood that they're, they're, they're operating from an industrial era educational model that demands kind of rote memorization um, is, is off the charts. Like that's going to be what they do. Um, and so it's much harder to train good teachers. Like there are very few, few countries that have done that at scale, uh, relatively speaking. And the U.S. is not one of them if you actually take the averages. We know how to do it, but we don't invest in it across the board. Um, and, and in Africa, it's, it's, it's a little different. Like I've seen, I know what the shape of a good teacher training initiative is, but I don't see them being, uh, invested in across the board. In fact, people are more interested in, oh, let's put like a, a magic whiteboard at the front of the classroom. And then maybe we'll put some like special tech that we cooked up in Silicon Valley that we're pretty sure that'll make a big difference. And those like educational initiatives that lean too heavily on tech, uh, and disempower the actual community's ability to hold some of that responsibility uh, have a terrible track record like the um, one laptop per child uh, a lot of the data that came out of that um, really put a hold on the kind of magical thinking about tech although there's still plenty of it around um, you know and that's that's skipping over all the stuff about displaced people which if you get up into the horn of africa is a huge issue and famine i mean like suddenly we have famine again that's super uh shameful as a as a species that we let that happen famine doesn't happen overnight you see it coming for a year in advance at least and there's all kinds of warning signs that we still let that take root and start wiping out people at a in, in a painful way and in front of the world so i mean but at the same time right africa's like their banking system just took a giant leap uh, beyond the one in the in the u.s like when i when i used to look around and try to bank in africa like eight years ago the fees were incredible. The lines were long. The services were difficult, even with like well-known international banks. And if you had somebody in your employ who was only earning like a hundred dollars a month or something like that, and they went and they wanted to access the banking system, the fees for even holding that account and for putting money in and out of that account could quickly evaporate their entire savings. Like it's, it was a known that a poor person could go into the bank and then be told that they owed the bank. And meanwhile, they thought, oh, I really? put this money in the, in the bank to save it like it was under a mattress three years ago. And the bank's like, yeah, well, you had fees and the fees ate all your money. And so it wow, used to be crazy. like a, the worst stuff from our banking system applied to the most vulnerable people. Um, but now with the the breakthrough that is often credited to like M-Pesa in Kenya, um, kind of driving all these a new kind of mobile money wallets, um, you're starting to see people who can move money around and save money. Um, they can save money more reliably and they can move money cheaper, um, which does have advantages. Like there are definitely, um, there are definitely lots of kind of enterprising entrepreneurial people that are, that are kind of trying to get a toll in, in the economy via that. Um, at the same time as there are, are, are predatory actors that are, are using, you know, misleading kind of text message prompts and stuff to defraud people of their money because now, 
your money is is inside of a device that can be used to deceive you. Like your mattress wouldn't do that, but your mobile phone damn well will. Hmm. So that's but so it's just kind of an interesting in, in in giving you that answer. I wanted to try to run that full spectrum of like there are areas where the innovation is uh, really impressive. Also in terms of ruggedizing things like hardware innovation, making things that don't get messed up by like. Uh, in incredible humidity or like attempts at theft and burglary, like there have been some really great breakthroughs in, in ruggedized computing terminals and um, a lot of the kind of drone uh, innovation stuff that UNICEF's working on in, in Malawi and so forth is really pushing hardware down in cost and up in kind of lifespan, um, you know, just as there are systems standing beside it that still, you know, really disappoint us. Yeah, well, you said a lot. Um some of the surprising things were the uh, the things that truly would help education in many of these countries, like you said, toilets, so that um, you know girls that reach puberty could go to school and don't stay home and drop out. Mm-hmm. Um, simple things. It's not high tech stuff. It's not like you said, one laptop per child. All those things. That, that's really surprising to hear that. So, with the knowledge you've gotten um, from being there, feet on the ground in all these countries. Now that you're the you know the vice chair of the Grand Global Challenges, what are the Grand Global Challenges that that would help places like Africa, you know, either the educational side or just to improve life in general there? What do you see as the uh, the Grand Challenges? So, I mean, the way that um, Singularity and uh, and and various foundations and the UN kind of frame their challenges, whether they call them you know, whether it's the challenges that the uh, sustainable development goals are fighting or whether it's what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation works on, the challenges are usually things like, okay, there's still, you know, 800 million hungry people, according to like statistics that are are very interestingly challenged. The numbers could be far higher if you read uh, like Jason Hickel's analysis, for instance. Um, But they just quantify big problems. They're like, there's a lot of dirty water. There's not a lot of sanitation. There's uh, low literacy. There's you know, vulnerability to this or that epidemic. So all of those are all of those are very real problems, and there are lots of people that are basically tackling them like uh, well-funded engineers um, or uh, kind of market-minded uh, VC-backed, um, you know, business heads. What I see, if I zoom out one more layer to a more um, kind of systems consideration, is that um, a lot of these, a lot of the places where you see um, poverty that's kind of uh, uh, become ingrained over the decades and where now poverty is is something experienced by well over 50% of the population. Um, I am I have become increasingly suspicious of, uh, or rather increasingly disinterested in efforts to solve that poverty that uh, try to go after and elevate individuals. Um, and we still see that, certainly Silicon Valley, certainly most uh, VCs think about it that way. They're like, how many, they want to get individual users. They want to hook individual users so that if you see me using like a tablet to like have some some personal gains, you can't even use my tablet. It's like locked to my account. You have to get your own. And then, okay, great. We have like, you know, higher penetration of our mobile wallets or whatever it is. Um, but it's still it's still incredibly atomizing, and it still kind of takes as its paradigm this um, kind of competitive landscape, which from one perspective, it's just like a brain drain. If you're like, let's go to Africa and teach everyone how to code, it's the same as saying, let's go to Africa and hold soccer camps everywhere so that we can find the best athletes and pull them into our country, mm. right? It, it doesn't actually raise the floor under the economy or substantially dent poverty. It just helps other more developed economies to identify talent that can be had for a low price. 
And so anything that's going in there with it, it's, it's brilliant. You can be anything narrative. And like, you know, we, we found a hacker in, in every part of the world. You know, they even turned on the camera on our device. It's like, I don't care. Of course they did. Like, that's a numbers game. You gave out 100 million things and some of them kids figured them out. But like, where are the like gains at the societal level for what you did? And it's like, well, if you were if you were aiming for individuals, they're probably not there. So a lot of the things that I've seen be more transformative seek to establish in poor communities um, kind of uh, groups that meet together and generally then become uh, bonded around the activities that they do together. So the one of the programs that my company has been supporting is, is creating uh, digital tools to help people who facilitate what are called self-help groups. So there was this big wave of like microfinance a while ago and everybody got so excited. You know, you give the poor loans and banks were like, finally, we have new clients to put on our ledger sheets. And after they figured out how to give those loans without having to pay too much in the salaries to their loan officers, they started dishing out loans all over the world. And then there was this, uh, you know, sadly predictable um, wave of hyper predatory lending um, from banks. So instead of like individual loan sharks stealing from the poor, it became, you know, Comportamo's bank or, you know, uh, officers that were trained by a benevolent sounding NGO that then realized they could kind of tap the loan rate up. So after the after that kind of integrity collapse of microfinance, from which valid new shoots of microfinance have emerged, but after they got all that mud on their face, um, people started to pay attention to models that ask poor people to come together, save their money together, um, and then keep it amongst themselves and loan it amongst themselves. So it wasn't about accessing outward capital. It would be about like... 18 women in like rural Ethiopia coming together uh, once a week for one or two hours, each of them saving, you know, a few burr, like less than a dollar uh, each week until they had a collective pot between them that might be like $20. And then they're kind of in an open booked way um, presenting to one another their loan proposals and saying, all right, I want to buy, I want to buy a goat and I'll pay you all back at this rate for this long. Or somebody else is like, I want to buy a hundred kilo sack of rice and sell it in micro portions and I'll pay you back here. Or I propose that we as a group buy like these, buy things in bulk and sell them in small ways. But the, the impact of these types of groups has been really transformational. There was a a study commissioned um, to look at the self-help groups that uh, tier fund started in in Ethiopia, and they were finding that for every dollar invested in starting and supporting these groups, um, the community around it was benefiting, uh, on average, between $80 and $160. Now, that type of ratio is actually, like, insane. That that got the the researcher kind of flown to the World Bank, flown here, flown there, and, like, everybody was like, are, is, are these results even even legitimate? Um, and, you know, they, they passed the test of science, and it's like if you if you create these groups that then in many cases they'll stay together for decades. When a woman if a woman passes away, wow. her child will like inherit membership in these groups. So you can create these really sticky, self sufficient um, communities that most importantly they do enable you to kind of have entrepreneur have the drive of entrepreneurship, benefit from the like the momentum of business, but it de risks it because if someone in one of these groups. Um, defaults on a loan or if their husband dies or if, if they get really sick, the group has a big incentive to keep that woman in the game, to help her um, kind of recover from her situation, even at times to like forgive a loan if they know that she's kind of gotten snowed under by it. 
I mean, they'll keep right. reserves of money, prudent reserves of money, just to buffer one another from the, the realities of poverty. Um, whereas if you're just going around and you're trying to do like, you know, a startup weekend in all these different poor areas, you're glossing over the fact that at least 50% of new businesses fail, right? That's a low estimate, right? Everybody will right, say 50%. Yeah. Some people say 80. If it's a high growth tech company, it's like literally 93%. And so you're feeling good because you can say we started all these new businesses. But if I'm poor, I can't afford that business to fail. We look at these entrepreneurs and they're like, never stop trying, never stop trying. You're like, yeah, yeah, with your trust fund or with your like wealthy community around you or with your like socialized medicine, go ahead, try again and again. But if you're super poor and you lost the only collateral that you had and all your social capital because your community doesn't think like failing is a good thing, right, then you did a massive disservice to that person. So I'm looking at all the different ways that organizations come in and try to create a, whether it's a livelihoods group or a productive group of people that share a certain, um, uh, a certain way of, of generating income from the land or something, um, and then bringing them together and having them gain skills together, having them open their books to one another so that they learn one another's lessons and so that they start making careful, democratic, tactical decisions about how to kind of spend and, and, and use their resources. And there's a corollary there to the like really exciting, like delegative democracy, liquid democracy, um, these new platforms that enable for people to make decisions together um, asynchronously uh, and efficiently in ways that could potentially help resurrect, um, you know, democracy from the kind of pony show that it's become. Um, So, yeah, it's that kind of system stuff that, that I think is hopeful, hope inspiring. Yeah, this sounds like what what works is the teach a man to fish uh, type analogy instead of throw money at them or, like you said, have a hackathon and find the one person that is is always going to be there that can, you know, code something, that kind of thing. Um, Is there a name for when a group of individuals pools their money, you know, like a savings pool? And uh, I I feel like there's there's a term there. Yeah, yeah. So some are called savings groups. Some are like SG's savings groups. Some are uh, VSLA's, Voluntary Savings and Loan Associations. The ones I'm talking about are called self-help groups. They're distinguished by the fact that they don't, um, that they that they last a lot longer and that they're much less likely to start looking for outside credit in their early years. Um, some of the, there's lots of experiments around this model, which is great because we need, you know, uh, when something shows as much promise as this does, by all means, iterate on the program design and, and, and evaluate the results. Um, but the key differences tend to be, does the group, for instance, pay out at the end of a year uh, so that they, they don't have to wait that long for the reward of, of being with it? Um, and then do, does the group kind of prioritize uh, organizing itself to request external capital? Like, is the group used as a means for accessing uh, financial services? Because there's some people that see that really like its potential for doing that. Um and there's, you know, differing levels of promise and impact in, in these different approaches. But yeah, savings groups, VSLAs and SHGs are the and, and cooperatives to some extent, different types of cooperatives uh, also participate in this um, type of development. Maybe it's a stupid misconception, but I would think if, if someone's, you know, if a community is extremely poor, how can they save any money? But I guess it's possible. And small amounts of money make a big difference. 
Yeah, I mean, like, even in places that are really poor, right, people are used to maybe they buy chewing gum every day or they buy a couple cups of tea or coffee a day or, like, once a month they'll invest in, like, a, a, a much nicer uh, outfit or hairstyle or something, right? Even in Even in really poor economies, as long as you're not dealing with, like, totally displaced like refugees who may have lost all their access to like all their wealth generating um you still have these kind of money money is still changing hands in micro increments and so a lot of the time when groups are like oh we're too poor to save you're just like look you know how many of you like bought candy in the last week and if they're like well we all did like great so like buy one less piece of candy and save 10 cents and literally like a lot of these groups will start with like that fractional an amount of money um, and, and it will take them, but while they're saving that at the beginning, if you can kind of like each little bit more that they save is a reason that they want to come back to the group because they're now invested. They're like, I don't want to walk away. I've given this group a certain amount of this money. I need to stick around and see what that's for. And every time they come together to make those savings, you have a captive audience that are ready to learn a little bit more about business together. So you have a viable platform for teaching entrepreneurialism that also becomes really sticky. So they can say, you know what, let's do last week's lesson again, because it was hard and we don't, we don't understand interest again. Let's do that module three, four, five times in a row. They can kind of self pace in their learning as they become, as they slowly get to the point where they're like, okay, we have, we have $9 and for $9, you could probably buy like six small chickens, right? So somebody's ready to like, build a business and start demonstrating the kind of the way that you can put money to work after just a few dollars are aggregated between them. And a lot of the times groups will start there. And then, you know, in like seven years, one of these women will be buying trucks and ferrying commodities across like borders, you know, like they get, they get a bug for it because they've, you know, that kind of rags to riches thing is the reason. So there's a lot of reasons that that narrative resonates, but if you've, if you've seen yourself, advance from a level that you look back on and can't even imagine inhabiting anymore, um, you're probably going to have a little bit more entrepreneurial fire than like, you know, your average bear. Do these lessons ever come back across from Africa to the U.S.? I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. In Africa, these groups are helping these people and you probably think it's ridiculous that people in America say they can't save any money. You know, Hmm. imagine if they did such a thing here in the U.S. Is, Is anyone listening? And taking these lessons back to first world countries for the poor there. Yeah, you know that it's it's happening more. It's happening more and more. There are kind of um, organizations that are interested in like teaching, um, taking these stories. One of the ones that was actually affiliated with us at the very uh, beginning of of building this app that's called uh, One Hen focuses on. Um, like primary schools in the U.S. and teach and showing them an example of an African entrepreneur who did this kind of, um, you know, micro savings to like industrial scale business transition um, and then kind of shares, uses it as a jumping off point for teaching young people about uh, economical principles and doing business and so forth. Um, so there, that's one of the clearest ways of trying to bring the story in the other direction. Um, but it's not about necessarily these like savings groups and methods and the tech and all that, right? It's just the story came back. Um, but there are people that are, um, kind of looking at what we can learn from, um, resilient cooperatives and kind of self-sufficient economic bodies and trying to apply it to, um, you know, activist circles or like say, uh, uh, producers that are, are fighting, um, 
uh, hostile regulatory climate and, and so forth. Um, but overwhelmingly, like the kind of uh, the, the flow of, of, of ideas and, and, and kind of wagging fingers goes from, from the wealthy to the poor. I, I think that just in the next little while, though, like we're, I think that probably we're going to see a lot more copyable or emulatable kind of um, innovations around blockchain, for instance, coming from um, poor countries and working their way back uh, to wealthier ones. Um, I've already seen, you know, like there's a lot of, uh, of interest in sub-Saharan Africa and using um, uh, leveraging blockchain to lower the cost of remittances and cut into existing kind of financial behemoths like uh, MoneyGram or Western Union. Um, people are looking into it for doing micro-credentials to better track and, and monitor um, whose skills are legit and who's vouched for by uh, reputable people. Or like in Ghana, like putting the entire national property register on the blockchain. Um, so I do think we're going to be we're going to be seeing um, a lot of these innovations turn around and come the other way. Um, and the mobile money is a good example of one that's you know it's it's making its way out of Kenya to the rest of the world. Um, so it's, yeah, that 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 flow is kind of becoming uh, at least multi-directional. Okay, well. I love the perspectives you've given because you have the real knowledge having lived in these countries and um, knowing what really will help and what, what has failed. And I know we can talk about many more things, but you know, I, I think we're running out of time. So I, I wanted to close and ask, um, how can people get involved in a way that will actually help these communities, these poor? Uh, do they have to uh, put in a, a plan for a global grand challenge or what are your recommendations? Hmm. Um yeah, it's a great question. If your if your motivation is to actually kind of reach out and make a dent in in poverty, um, so if you're if you're trying to do that while maintaining your existing lifestyle, right? If you're not trying to like up sticks and and develop a new specialty and 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 get fully committed to it, um, one of the one of the things that's gotten increasingly um, increasingly popular, and I think for legitimate reasons, is um, models of of giving. Uh, of sending uh, money kind of directly to the poor without the intermediaries of um, organizations uh, eating it up with their overheads and then hoping that their interventions are effective. So like Give Directly has gotten a lot of press. Um, I believe they started in California and I think they they managed to give like 90, 90 some cents on the dollar that's donated goes then to uh, poor families that have uh, kind of passed through uh, their own filters and demonstrated that they're they're in need, but perfectly capable of making intelligent decisions about where to spend money. So a lot of poverty, it's just like money needs to be redistributed. And so if you don't have time to like invest in teaching people something or uh, or learning from them something and like and, and and honoring or celebrating them for what they taught you, but you do have spare capital. Um, there's there are organizations setting themselves up to help you just get that capital in the right hands and some you know they they're not they're not without flaws but they're better than that money being spent on your next you know computer game or whatever right like it's going to have a bigger impact on the world uh, that you shared um and the nice thing is that the paradigm is shifting a little bit and it needs to away from again giving to individual families to funding um projects funding like basic income uh, studies and projects. So even give directly or looking at how do they, 
how do they maybe give everyone in a, in a particularly poor village a regular um, life-sustaining income for a number of years so that those people can enjoy the, the safety and stability of being um, out of immediate financial peril, which lets them be creative and entrepreneurial and thrive like, like those in more wealthy countries. Because um, if you go and you look into the research around basic income, like it works best when everybody's getting it. It's not supposed to be like tied money and like shameful to receive and only it's not welfare. It is a it is a Satan. I mean, Guy Standing, who's done a lot of this research with the basic income Earth Network, hates the term safety net. But the bottom line is like it is it has raised the floor up under you so that like if you fall, you can't fall into, you know, uncared for instant death. But rather, you've got you've got money for health, you've got money for your kids' education, and so forth. So, you know, if you got resources, give them up. And if you've got time, you know, maybe try to focus on having a skill that that people need to leverage to make these problems smaller in stature. Okay. Well, Nathaniel, thanks so much for your time and your perspectives and your info. I, you know, I feel like I learned a lot, and I know listeners listening to this will have a now very different perspective on what's actually happening in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and how they can help if they choose to. So thanks for uh, spending the time. And any last resources you want to give to listeners so they can find out more either about the global grand challenges at Singularity or, you know, give directly or other kinds of things. What resources do you want to give? So um, I I tweet at at Code Innovation, um, and I pretty much I don't tweet all that often. But what I try to do is when I see people um, that are are using technology or innovating in systems very effectively to make a dent in poverty, um, I'll put it up there. So that's kind of like where I try to keep folks posted. Um, you know, if you're just if you're interested in some of the flashier tech and how it might pertain to global grand challenges, Singularity Hub. Um, is where SU kind of produces content on a daily basis from the uh, kind of network of researchers they have. Um, yeah, so I'd say kind of check check those two things out, and you'll probably uh, find resources from there uh, that you want to follow independently. Okay, well, very good, Nathaniel. Thanks again for coming, and I really appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure. Have a, a great afternoon. You've been listening to Almost Here Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.